cried out to God and I said, God, if you don't save me, I'm going to die like this. And immediately I could feel the presence of God on my life immediately when I cried out to God. And I knew that my life had changed and I knew that my focus in prison had changed and that I began to focus on the word. I began to focus. I chased Chaplain Taki down. I said, I don't care if I can stack chairs or whatever. You know, a lot of times I believe that if it's something that you want, then you need to go and find people that are doing what you want. If you tell people no about housing and reentry services, then you're not really setting people up for success. You're really setting them up for failure. And when you deny people the basic things that they need, employment, housing, licensing opportunities, or other educational opportunities, you set them up for failure. This is Justice Voices, stories that need to be told, voices that need to be heard. Welcome to Justice Voices. I'm David Risley. Our guest today is Willette Benford, who's the chair of the Foley Free Campaign Board, which we talked about in our Episode 8 conversation with Marlon Chamberlain. Ms. Benford, welcome. Thank you. We also want to welcome Marlon Chamberlain, the Fully Free Campaign Manager, who's joining us as guest co-host, and also Donna Lamalino, who was the subject of a previous conversation that was published as Episode 4, a two-part episode. And Donna is also a returned citizen who spent time in prison, came back out, and rebuilt her life. And Marlon and I thought it might be good to have another woman involved in this conversation, Ms. Benford. You have several stories, actually, that we'd like to hear about today. We'd like to hear about your life before prison and what led to you going to prison. We'd like to learn about your experience in prison. And during the time that you were in prison, you had some transformational experiences that we'd like to hear about. We'd like to hear about your experience after you were released from prison, as you re-entered community life. And the most important part of this story is not who you were in the past, it's who you are today, and what you've made of yourself, and what you're doing with the Fully Free campaign. Before we get to today, let's get the backstory. Will you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you lived, where you grew up, and just tell the story of what led to you going to prison? Well... I grew up in Rockford, Illinois, Fairgrounds Housing Project. We grew up, well, I tell people I didn't know I was poor until I knew. We grew up in poverty. It was home. It was home to us, but, you know, it was the projects. And so everything that came along with that, everything that comes along with living in poverty. And so from the age of 16 on, I was in and out of abusive relationships, you know, and that last relationship was abusive. My partner was violent, and in defending myself, my partner lost her life. Okay, well, tell us about that, because that's important to understand how you ended up in prison. Yes. First of all, when you say abusive, in what sense are you talking about? Violent as far as fighting, threatening to kill me and my baby. You know, it was just a, a difficult situation. 
you know, and prior to that, those were the only relationships that I knew that I had been in abusive relationships, didn't really understand my worth. And so when you don't, you know, you settle for less. And even in being in those types of relationships, I really, really didn't understand that this was not how it was supposed to be. I knew, but I didn't. And so those were the kind of relationships that I was in. This is a situation that I think a lot of women find themselves in that grew up in the environment that you did. It certainly was with Donna in her experience. And that is, if you don't know anything else, it seems normal. Well, I wouldn't say that. What I was, I say that because initially getting in a relationship and then fighting and then making up, you know, it seems like that's just the way it's supposed to be. Contrary to the fact that I never saw my dad lay a hand on my mom. Never. Ever. So you knew it was not. It was not the way it's supposed to be. Absolutely. But you were in a cycle. Yes. I was going to ask, Willette, can you you speak more to when you say that poverty, when you talk about just like how you grew up and how poverty was almost like it was normal. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Well, I say it because in our communities, What we had was all that we knew, you know, whether it was welfare, whether it was poor education, whether it was not livable wages, all of those things seem the norm until you see that everyone doesn't live like that, that it's not okay not to have livable wages. It's not okay for your children not to go to nice schools. It's not okay for you to be food insecure. That's not okay. That kind of poverty. Now, you talked about how there came to be the events that led to you going to prison. Now, I know this is a painful memory, both in terms of what happened and what the consequences were, but can you tell us about that? Well, yeah. That particular night, I talk about it because women are normally criminalized for surviving. And so when you survive, you're punished at a more severe and harsher rate than men. And so I tell it because if I was a man, I probably would have only been sentenced between two to six years. But as a woman, I was sentenced to 50 years for surviving, for surviving. What happened? Well, that night, my partner, which had always been abusive from the onset of the relationship, became violent in a club when I was dancing. And so she grabbed me off the dance floor. I got away went to my car, got in my car to drive off. And in my zeal to drive off, she jumped on the hood of the car and I pulled off and I hit her. Never knowing, I had turned around and came back down the street, but I never knew that I hit her. And for 20 years, 
my story never changed because the truth doesn't change. How did you not know that you hit her? Because it was on a dark street. We were at a warehouse. There were many potholes in the street. And so what I really thought I hit was a pothole because I never saw her. She had on all black and was down on the ground. Never knew. And you were charged with her murder. I was charged with murder. And convicted. And convicted. And even during that time, during my trial, my lawyer advised me to not speak about the relationship. So therefore, the jury was left to think that I went to a club with a friend, got angry, and left and killed her. You ended up being convicted by a jury. I was convicted by a jury, not of my peers. But the judge is the one who sentenced you. The judge is the one who sentenced me. And I, I say that the jury was not a jury of my peers because they were not my peers. You know, a lot of times, you, you know, that's what our criminal legal system says. You will be tried by a jury of your peers, which is the furthest thing from the truth. I think about a lot of things that went on and just the fact that not being able to speak truth in the courtroom because it would be used against me, not mentioning the fact that I was black, I was in a same-sex relationship, and there was violence involved. And so my attorney advised me not to speak about the relationship because it would prejudice the jury against me. And yet the relationship and the violent nature of that relationship was the context in which the events unfolded. So the jury never heard about that. Never heard about it. Okay, so in any event, you got sentenced to 50 years in prison. I did. And you went to prison. I did. Tell us about your prison experience. First of all, how much of that time did you really serve in prison? Well, I served... 23 years in prison, but the last four months were served in Cook County for my immediate release. I was remanded. But, you know, I hear a lot of people say prison saved my life, and prison did not save my life. My life could have been saved on the streets with the right resources and things made available. That was not a road that I had to take. However, God saved my life. And so I, I say that with conviction because I know that God is real. I know that he He can be found anywhere, even in prison. I didn't really have a relationship with God, but I did develop a true relationship with God inside. And when you, you asked me about prison and how much time I spent, I spent most of the time that I was given in prison until the new law came on the books. There was a new law that came on the books I was working at Women and Family Services, and my supervisor said that they were putting in for a new domestic violence bill and asked if I would tell my story. I said, well, yes, if it'll benefit someone else, absolutely. So I wrote it out and gave it to her, and she in turn gave it to the uh, lawyers that were working on it, Cabrini Green Legal Aid. And... After I wrote it, the law was passed. They, they passed the law. And 
I saw the law and I saw five different, it was five different prongs on it. And I fit each one of them. And I said, well, maybe I should go and write a motion. So I went to the law library and I wrote the motion out and uh, was petitioning, was going to petition the courts. And one of the lawyers asked me if they could support me in that. And also if I had my transcripts and I said, absolutely, I saved them for 20 years. And so CGLA took my transcripts to a law firm, Kirkland and Ellis, one of the largest law firms in the world. And they represented me for free. They were a corporate law firm. And so I was told, well, let they never come and see anybody. We had a conversation on the phone and they came down to visit me, a senior partner and two junior partners. And we spoke for four hours. That was the first time in 23 years that I knew I was talking to someone who believed me. That was the first time. And they represented me pro bono and fought for me as if I had paid them millions of dollars. So for those in our audience who don't know what pro bono means, that means they did it for free. Yes. As a public service. Yes. And a personal service to you. Absolutely. And so, you know, even inside in prison, you know, I just kind of, you know, I fought for different things inside of prison. You know, there were different things going on that I had to write grievances about to get changed just many different things that led me up until this point. And so after I wrote my motion and submitted it, everyone that had wrote their motions were denied. And the reason they were denied because of untimeliness. Now, grant you, some people had been locked, have been locked up just like me for over 20 years. The law didn't come on the books until 2016. And there was a two-year window period from the time you were sentenced. It was impossible to do that to file the motion two years after your sentencing date. So all these judges were, and, and the state's attorney and, and the state were denying these individuals uh, a right to have their cases heard based off of untimeliness. And so my judge, his name was Arthur Frank Hill Jr. I will never forget it. He was a black man at Cook County and on August 28th of 2018, he told the state's attorney and my lawyer to bring me to court. Neither one of them had asked to see me. When I came into court, it took him less than 30 minutes to grant my petition. We never knew that he was going to grant it on that day. My attorneys didn't know, but I did. That morning when I woke up and put my feet on the floor at four o'clock in the morning, I heard God say, I have set before you an open door, and no man can shut it. I heard that at four o'clock in the morning before I went to court that day. And so the state's attorney was there to rehearse the case as if it had happened the day before. And my attorneys, they stuck strictly to the law. And at the end, the judge said, I've heard everything. I've listened to everything. He said, and I believe that this law was made for people like Miss Benford. And for that reason, I'm going to grant her petition for resentencing. What was the name of the law? Domestic violence as a mitigating factor. Let's go back in time. I want to talk about what happened next in your life after you were released and what that was experience was like. But before we do it, we need to talk about your experience before that day because you spent two decades in prison. I did. 
And there aren't going to be very many of the people who are going to be listening to this who've had that experience. Mm -hmm. And it would be illuminating for them to hear a, a bit about your experience. First of all, the prison experience itself, but then I'd like to talk about this religious dimension you've been talking. But let's talk about the prison experience itself first. What was it like? Had you been to prison before? I had. I had been to jail before. And in jail? Yes. So a and county jail. I did jail. town in a county jail, yes. Which is a lot different than prison, isn't it? Well, I wouldn't say so because in New Orleans, it's just as bad. <laughs> New Orleans, okay. Yes, it's bad. I wasn't expecting New Orleans. I know, right? A lot of people wasn't. Marlon <laughs> just heard it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was, you know... The experience in prison, prison is difficult, especially for women. Women aren't safe in prison. Things happen in prison that people don't often talk about. You know, I was the victim of a, uh, two mass strip searches in front of male officers and staff. The slave labor, working for 70 cents a day for 20 years. You know, I did hair for 20 years in prison. You did and my hair. I'm sorry. That's like loud probably. I know. <laughs> I knew I read. You did my hair. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. I did hair, you know, and and I know that God blessed my hands because I could do anybody's hair, black, white, Hispanic, Asian. It didn't matter. If you sat in my chair, I could do your hair, curly head, straight hair, whatever. And so, you know, I did that. And every time I, I did hair, I did the very, very best I could for that 70 cents because I was sowing a seed. I was not doing it for the pay. Now, they could have paid me more, but I was going to do my best in what I did anyway. And, you know, a lot of times inside, you know, people's lives are different. Everybody's life is not the same. Some people are treated horribly. Other people learn how to survive the system so that they can make it out alive. Now, this is interesting that you were uh, doing people's hair. Is that a skill that you had before you went to prison or did you learn it in prison? I did not. I entered prison with a ninth grade education. I came out with an associate's degree. Okay. How did you, first of all, learn this, the, the trade, the skills of being a hairdresser? I went to school. In I prison. went to cosmetology school in prison. Yes. My teacher's name was Chris Cripe, and she was a phenomenal teacher. I even began to teach. I began to teach people how to do certain cuts and did the budget for her and did the ordering for, her, you know, just a lot of different things that I learned in prison. I went to business management. I went to building maintenance. I graduated from restaurant management. I did a lot of things in prison. I taught leadership classes. I taught Bible study for 13 years. Every unit I went on, I started a Bible study. And we studied the Bible together, and, you know, uh, people's lives were changed. I am a firm believer prayer changes things. It does indeed. <laughs> so the reason I ask about the hairdresser part is because if you're a hairdresser, you talk to people. I do. You hear their stories. I do. They share with you. They do. 
And you probably had a lot of opportunities to be a good listener and also be a good influence on people. In your religious perspective, did it seem almost like a ministry? Well, it was ministry. I not only ministered at the beauty shop, but I also ministered at the chapel. I would uh, minister at both services. There were times when Chaplain Fronton would call on me to preach. I knew that God had gifted me to be a teacher and a minister of the word. So, you know, and also, yeah, when people would come and sit in the chair, even if it was things, horrible things going on with them, they trusted me enough to be able to to be a confidant. You know, they would share things with me that they wouldn't share with anyone else. And I would pray with them. There were times when I would pray for people while they were sitting in my chair. I would try to give them the best advice. But most of all, I would try to introduce them to Jesus. How long was it? after you went to prison, that you had this spiritual awakening, or or had that already happened before you went to prison? Seven years. Seven years. Seven years. Compare and contrast before and after. Well, inside, for the first seven years, just devastated about the amount of time I had trying to feel my way around. I always knew that I wouldn't do 50 years in prison. I knew that. But I also had to make peace with the fact that I was going to be there for a minute. And so I just, you know, I, I, I was in and out of relationships even inside. And I found myself in another abusive relationship inside. And I cried out to God and I said, God, if you don't save me, I'm going to die like this. And immediately I could feel the presence of God on my life immediately when I cried out to God. And I knew that my life had changed and I knew that my focus in prison had changed and that I began to focus on the word. I began to focus. I chased Chaplain Taki down. I said, I don't care if I can stack chairs or whatever. You know, a lot of times I believe that if it's something that you want, then you need to go and find people that are doing what you want. And so I asked him about stacking chairs. I just wanted to be in the church where people, you know, I felt like people were were in a place where they could have some peace. I didn't have any peace. And so when I began to go to church and just really um, spend that quality time with people that had already knew the Lord, my life began to change. It really, really began to change. I'm sure there are going to be people who are going to be listening, who are going to be listening to what you're saying and interpreting it to mean this is something that was a emotional or psychological experience, (laughs) and they're going to doubt that it was really an experience with God. They may even doubt the reality of God. What would you say to that person? You ask my family. (laughs) They'll tell you it's real. Because the contrast of my life before and after was totally different. That the way that I live now compared to how I was living before I had my encounter with God is the difference between night and day. It's the difference between darkness and light. It's the difference between heaven and hell. 
It's the difference between peace and chaos. I don't have to convince anyone that it's real. All I have to do is live it because I know that I know that I know that he lives. Yeah, you know. I know. You experienced it. I experienced it. And it wasn't a one-time thing. It was not a jailhouse religion. (laughs) (laughs) You know how some people say you had a jailhouse religion? No, a a relationship and not religion. You know, a real personal relationship. It's personal. God met me where I was at. I wasn't raised in the church. I didn't, I wasn't holier than thou. I didn't believe, that's why it was so easy for people to talk to me because they knew how I lived before and how I live now. And so it was easier for them to come to me and not be judged. That judgmental self-righteous spirit is the one that pushes people away from God and not pulls him to pull them to him. Because, you know, a lot of people are judgmental and self-righteous. I don't care who they are, where they are. They feel as if, you know, they're better than someone else simply because. But the ground is level at the cross. Everyone has to come the exact same way. And so it, it doesn't matter what I have or what I don't have. If I have Jesus, then I have it all. That's my starting point. And it was what helped you endure the remaining, what, 16 years that you had left that you served in prison. Yeah, and I wouldn't even say that I endured it. I will say that my life, when I say people's lives were different inside, my life was different. And I know that it was because of God. Even when all hell was breaking loose, strip searches, cells tossed, still being able to have that peace. There was, you know, feeling feeling saddened and hurt behind it, but still being able to have that peace that surpasses all understanding. That kind of life. And being able to encourage others not to go crazy, not to not to tear the whole joint up because of what just happened. And trying to be that voice of reason, but that voice of reason only came because of the wisdom of God to be able to tell people, if you tear, if you tear it up, they're going to lock you down for months, you know? So, you know, just really being able to do that, that was a gift from God. Now I'm going to make an observation here. We've had recorded conversations with each of the three of you independently of one another. And all three of you have shared with me how your experience with church, with God, in prison, made such a difference to you in your prison experience and in leading you to where you are today. Mm -hmm. Because it didn't end when you got out of prison. Mm -mm. Now that is in itself that three people, like the three of you, would be sharing that as a integral part, if not a turning point in your lives, and that it happened in prison, then it was an important part of your prison experience. Most people wouldn't associate that with prison. Yeah. And yet you all three lived it. Mm-hmm. Just an observation. Now, let's turn to, get a fast forward up to where we left off, where you found out, the judge said, that you're going to be released from prison. 
How long was it after that before you actually got out? It was four months. I, I had written a grievance in prison. There was a job that I wanted. So it wasn't set in stone because the state could have appealed. So we were waiting on that phone call. And so during that time, the laws changed again. And there was uh, an opportunity for me to have a job that would afford me days, more money, and an opportunity to work outside the fence. And so I said, I want that job. And so I submitted for the job. But mind you, they had only given it to two people of color in five years. The whole five years that we had been there. They only gave the job to white girls. What was the job? The job was working outer perimeter detail. You were able to go out. Yep. Outer perimeter detail. You were afforded a two-man cell. But I had a two-man cell already the whole time I was there. But you were given a two-man cell. You were given over $100 a month for your pay. And you also could earn days off of your sentence. So the day I came from taking my cosmetology test, I went to Chow and a lieutenant wrote me a minor ticket. I hadn't had a ticket in eight years and it stopped me from getting the job. But he wouldn't hire any women of color. So I wrote a six page grievance on racism and discrimination. And after I wrote the grievance, I didn't get the job, but he began to hire black and brown girls at a rapid pace. Now, when I got that ticket, I said, God, now you know I want that job. And I heard him say, what if I just wanted you to start the process? Well, I said, well, I want to benefit from the process. I talked to God like that. I said, well, I want to benefit from the process. And I heard it again. What if I just wanted you to start the process? After that, I let it go. Two weeks later, I got my phone call. Miss Benford, this is your last two weeks in prison. The judge has remanded you and the state did not contest it. You will be leaving October 11th. I left out of Logan Correctional Center October the 11th and I have not been back. That was 2018. So tell us about that first day (laughs) when you walked out of the prison. (laughs) What What was waiting? What did you experience? Well, let me tell you, David. The first day, because I had to do a turnaround on the bus, I was supposed to leave that week before, but there was the vortex when everything froze down. I was like, God, now you know I need to get out of this this jail. So everything froze, and the next day, the next week, I was able to go back, and when I walked through that prison, there were women crying telling me that they were back in the law library. There were women telling me that they knew God was real. I had been telling them for years that God was going to send me home, and they saw it. It was a testimony to the faithfulness of God. And so he allowed me to walk back through there a free woman. They never made me get an ID. I walked the grounds freely to go do everything I needed to do to say bye to who I needed to say bye to. And my family was waiting up front for me. My son was waiting for me up front when it was time for me to walk out that door. And he met me at the front and my niece and my sister. That's remarkable. Yes. The women were very, very encouraged. And many of them are home today. Your family met you. Mm-hmm. And not everybody is nearly that fortunate to have family meet them as no. they walk through the gate. Yes. But after that, 
there are still challenges that you faced. Tell us the story of what happened after that release and really what led you to, you're now the board chair of the Fully Free campaign. What led to that? So tell us that whole story. Absolutely. Well, I came home and I, a lot of my friends here uh, were already doing the work. So what I did was I joined a coalition, the Just Housing Initiative Coalition, Just Housing Coalition. And we were working on the Just Housing Initiative, which was an ordinance that we submitted to stop landlords from denying people with records housing. And so we worked on it and it finally passed in April. April, I think it was the 19th of 2019. And fast forward, because when I came home, I went to a transitional house. And in that transitional house, I excelled. I did everything. I I fulfilled all the programs. I fundraised. I did everything. And when it came time for housing, they told me no. Now, I had a full-time job. I went to the polls to vote in March when I came home, and I met my boss there. He was a sitting alderman. I volunteered for him for 30 days, and he hired me full-time downtown at City Hall. And I was working for the city of Chicago, and they told me no about their housing. I had a full-time job. And that didn't sit well with me. So you mean they you were applying for housing? I was applying for housing. And through, you got denied? Through the transitional house, because after you leave the transitional house, they have an extension, which is housing, where you can get into their housing so that you can begin to get your, you know, get um, whatever housing resources that you need to go forward. So they told me no, and I asked them why, and they said because of my background, which was over 26 years old. And I I told him, I said, you know, it's illegal for you to deny me housing based off my background, right? And so, you know, they were like, we're not going to accept your application. We're not going to, we're not even going to take. And I thought about how many women before me did they tell no about housing that completed the program. And so I just, I reached out to the people that worked on the Just Housing Initiative with me. They were like, well, let's just start making a paper trail. If we have to gear up for a fight, then we're going to gear up for a fight. And so I did that. And about a week and a half later, they were like, well, Miss Benford, you're right. We are going to take your application. And we were wrong. The housing coordinator was wrong. You know, but I just think about the many, many women that you had told no before about housing, which is a basic basic necessity for being successful in society after prison. Well, certainly housing and employment are the exactly. two the two major things. And these yes. there are obstacles in both that people encounter. Yes, yes. And that is that was something that pushed me really into the work. Because if you tell people no about housing and reentry services, then you're not really setting people up for success. You're really setting them up for failure. And when you deny people the basic things that they need, employment, housing, licensing opportunities, or other educational opportunities, you set them up for failure. And, you know, a lot of people are homeless because of a background, you know, not because they don't, they can't have a, they can't get a job, not because, and some can't get a job, but a lot of people are homeless because you won't rent to them because, you feel like because they have a background, you can deny them housing. And that shouldn't be. And so the ordinance passed. And they they finally went ahead and 
was like, yeah, well, we're going to take your application. But I began to advocate for the women that were there too. I was like, you know, tell them that you know it's illegal for them to deny you housing. Miss Willette, they told me I can't get housing. Yes, you can. And people shouldn't have been calling me from Grace House to tell me that they couldn't get housing. They should have been, that. They, anytime you complete a program, you should be the first person considered for that housing. You should have been the first on the list. So those are some of the things, some of the barriers to reentry, housing the hugest. Just certain things that you can't do or say. The registry, my sentence was reduced, but I am on a registry. You have to register because of the charge. You know, and that is, it doesn't keep our community safe. Tell us about the registry. The registry is a registry where you have to register with the state police every year to let them know where you live. You have to pay $25. They also have this sex offender registry where people have to go every single week. How in the world? Does someone re-enter and be able to get their lives together and they have to show up downtown every single week? Now, at some point, if you believe that the criminal legal system works and that rehabilitation is real, why do you have all of these extended barriers once someone leaves prison? The registry is another form of correctional control. When someone comes home, they Amen. should be fully free because, because that gives you an opportunity to re-enter society and do the things necessary to be able to be the productive member of society that you want, that you say you want me to be. And so when you put these barriers in place, MSR, I was home for almost two months from an immediate release. Mandatory supervised release. Mandatory supervised release because there is no parole in Illinois. There's no way for you to earn your way out of prison. The only people that see a parole board, that see the parole board is C numbers. And so there's no way to earn your way out of prison. But when you come home, there's mandatory supervised release with a parole officer that has complete autonomy. It doesn't matter. They can violate you. For everyone that goes back, like 35% of people that are returned to IDOC are returned on a technical violation, not because they had another crime, not because they, they had another charge. A technical violation can be as small as you not reporting or forgetting to call in. It could be that you forgot to call and tell them that your address changed. Small things that you could work out with someone over the phone, but they violate you, send you back to the county. You lose your house. You lose your job. You could ultimately lose your children because women are the primary caregivers of their children. You could lose your children because of a technical violation and be sent back to prison waiting for the parole board for 30 days to see them so that they can decide whether or not you go home or you do the rest of your parole. During which time you lose any job that you might have had. You lose everything. Yeah. Now, yeah. one of the things that, in talking to Mr. Chamberlain about his experience and about the Fully Free campaign as well, in the two episodes we did with them, 
he described multiple tracks, really three tracks that people are on in his observation in prison. One of them is what you might call crime college. I mean, <laughs> they are they are using yeah. their time to learn about how to be smarter criminals. The other track was uh, kind of the in-between, which was the uh, just passing time to do the time. And then there was the track that he's was on and is still on. And I think all three of you are on, which is how am I going to use this time, play the cards I'm dealt, so to speak, and make the best of this time while I'm here so that when I get out, I can do something healthy, productive, law-abiding, a happy way of life, and make a contribution to society. If the law and the experience people have as they are released from prison treats everybody on all three tracks the same, then those people who are trying to live law-abiding lives and make contributions, uh, people like yourselves, if you're going to be treated like you were on the crime college track, well, it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy because it shoves people back into crime because they can't make a go of it any other way. If you can't get employment and you can't give housing, what are you supposed to do? So at least from my perspective, from a policy perspective, it's a self-defeating thing if we don't enable people as they leave prison to have the opportunities they need and the support services they need to be successful in re-entering community and family life and be able to accomplish the sort of things you have. Now, I got to tell you, Ms. Benford, it's obvious to me why you're the chair of the Fully Free Campaign. You are not a wallflower, and you're going to fight for what you see is right. <laughs> uh, Do you have a message that you want to share here at the end of this episode? I do. You talked about the three different tracks, David. But I would like to say those are some tracks that are on the inside. But a lot of times people are on those tracks because there are not resources on the inside. Rehabilitation from the inside is a joke if you don't rehabilitate yourself. And so I believe reentry should start the moment you enter the system. And if our society would give the necessary resources and tools for an individual inside, it should be an inside out game. You will never be able to say, we didn't provide you with every resource that you needed to be able to be successful because we're doing an inside out game as opposed to me floundering around trying to figure out some things. Education is limited. Opportunities are limited. Resources are limited on the inside. So a lot of people hustle on the inside because that's all they know. They from the streets. But all I'm saying is if you make sure, certain as a society, that every resource is made available so that you set people up for success when they come home, then we may only have one track. And that's the fast track getting out to success. So that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for that one track. And of course, there will always be people that even if you offer them everything, they will do the opposite. But I would rather err on the side of providing it for everyone and those that want it don't take it 
as opposed to not providing it. And you tell me, pull myself up by my bootstraps when I don't even have any boots. Well, this is important because what you're, for two reasons. Number one, what you're talking about, which is what does it take to have a successful reentry program? That it starts from day one. From day one. On the other hand, people shouldn't have to commit a qualifying felony to become eligible for those sorts of services. Thank you. And so Thank you. if the lessons learned that you're talking about, all three of you have talked about, in what it takes to be successful in reentry after prison into community and family life, well, let's just take those things and put them up at the front end and let's avoid people going to prison in the first place. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. I feel like we really have only scratched the surface of what you would have to <laughs> offer and share with us. But we'll close this conversation, this particular one, with the door being open to future conversations with you or other people you might think that we need to talk to. But definitely, your story is one that needed to be told, and your voice is one that needs to be heard. Thank you very much. Thank you, David. This is Justice Voices, stories that need to be told, voices that need to be heard.